Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Scott Price, who is musical director for Celine Dion, one of the best-selling artists of all time, with record sales of over 200 million copies worldwide. I caught up with Price at his office in Montreal before he embarked on a tour of Asia with Dion. Let's talk classical music real yeah, quickly. I'd love to. Because uh, before you got away professionally from classical, you were classically trained. Yeah, I started piano actually kind of late. I started around seven or eight years old, typical suburban boy taking lessons a little bit to please his mother. But I ended up... <laughs> As really, we all really, did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, really enjoying it. And um, I had a really good teacher to gave me a really good beginning. Fundamentals, like when I think back on it now, the theory that, um, you know, I learned on my chords and scales and transposition and chords and blah, blah, blah. I studied with the program from the Royal Conservatory of Music of Toronto. I didn't go to Toronto, but they send examiners to every major city in Canada twice a year, and you have a syllabus where you have to play certain pieces from certain periods, and it goes up to grade 10, and then you get a diploma, which is an ARCT, which is an associate of the Royal Conservatory of Toronto. I took a couple of pauses along the way. I got my ARCT, I think, when I was 21 or 22. I've never abandoned classical music as far as playing at home and playing for love, but I didn't have the discipline as a young child to become a virtuoso. Like I started to really, really practice hard when I turned 16, 15, 16. I fell in love with the band Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Oh, sure. And I realized that Keith Emerson, hey, this guy can really play. He has actual chops. Yes, exactly. And he was brilliant in so many ways. And one of them was that he would incorporate classical works into his, their performances and he adapted stuff and arranged stuff and everything. my ears so then I start to hit it and do scales and technique and really really get into it and that's from from that point on I became really really serious about music and never really did anything else <laughs> are there works you find yourself coming back to whether at home on the piano or the Goldberg variations mm-hmm. like I, I it's funny I, you go through phases about 15 or 20 years ago I thought Beethoven was the end of the world and I would never play anything else other than Beethoven uh, I haven't played any Beethoven like I don't play it professionally but for fun I can't leave it alone, but I haven't played Beethoven probably in the last 10 years, but now I feel myself starting to become interested in it again. Like I think the real classics, Mozart, Brahms, Bach, Beethoven, you never lose interest in that. And it's funny, I'm 57 years old now, only in the last four years, I started to really play any Chopin. I started playing the ballads. I'm working on the fourth one now. I learned the first one. I can't play it like Horowitz or anything, but I mean, I can bash through it, you know?
it's like, my goodness, I should have started this 30 years ago, Chopin. Right now I've discovered another composer when I was on tour with Celine last year. We were on a bus and this trumpet player played me this wild piano piece and I said, who's that? And it was Nikolai Kapustin. Do you know Nikolai Kapustin? Yes, I do. And he has these Opus 53, 24 jazz preludes. So I'm working on that now. I really like that because it's a language that speaks to me. It's really modern. The fact that there isn't a 200-year-old tradition behind it kind of makes it easier for somebody like me to... It straddles a lot of genres in, in a happy way. It's yeah. true. Like the guy, what a whiz. He's a, obviously an exceedingly huge, complex musical mind. So maybe that's a good transition to Celine, who herself, growing up in Quebec and straddling that very unique francophone culture right. that we have here. I speak a little French in every conversation I have has some melange of French and English. When we were in college and we took a year in France, we'd call that franglais. That's but, very good. That's what I was going to say. That's what we call it here. Yeah, but it's a very natural situation here because you have a group of people who are generally fluent 100% in both and easily shift back and forth as needed Correct. in the conversation. And some concepts, like these, those are the only two languages that I'm fluent in, English and French, some concepts, I'm sure you agree, are better expressed in a certain language. So that's uh, one reason why we switch back and forth so much. It's just like to make yourself understood faster. That's exactly right. There's a certain transparency in certain French concepts and I imagine vice versa. Correct. Celine Dion started as more of a French language, say, centric. She was completely a French-Canadian singer. J'irai chercher ton cœur Si tu l'emportes ailleurs Même si dans tes danses D'autres dansent tes heures J'irai chercher ton art Dans les froids, dans les flammes Je te jetterai des sorts who preceded her a very different physical presence and a very different voice and a very different personality she's a woman named Jeanette Renault who was a huge star in Quebec and I think she had chances to expand her horizons but I think she got a little bit cold feet l'essentiel c'est d'être aimé le reste importe peu la seule vérité c'est compter pour quelqu'un quoi qu'il puisse arriver C'est entrer dans son cœur et n'en sortir jamais. C'est recevoir autant qu'on aimerait donner. Ne plus s'appartenir, en être rassuré. What's ironic is that her manager at the time was René Angelil, who ended up managing Céline. And marrying Céline. Correct. Yes. Céline sort of followed in the beginning in that tradition, like a big belter, big ballads. French-Canadian, Quebecois music has always been big on that, like female singers that can really sing full tilt, big, heartfelt ballads. I think though at a certain point, Céline, when she turned 17, 18, because previously before that, she did 
a lot of records of three or four albums with um, a French lyricist, French from France, and the subjects were very fitting to a 14-year-old girl, like my boyfriend left me and family and stuff <laughs> like that. But when she turned 17, 18, you could see a switch. And I think I get the feeling that Celine did something like the equivalent of staying in her bedroom with a hairbrush as a fake microphone. And she went through everything. She went through Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, because Celine, honestly, yes, I work for her and she's my boss, but she's so impressive. She can sing anything and she's got soul and she's got chops. And I don't think she's, she's, Obviously, still practices voice and studies, takes voice lessons, but she's never, I could be wrong here, but I don't think she's ever studied classical vocal technique. I would be fascinated to hear her do a little more of that. Obviously, she does little things like um, the air from Carmen uh, that everybody knows. And she sounds classical, but I mean, I've never heard her sing a leader or something like that, but I'm sure she could do it. I think she could too. And I think that's, you know, that's also one of the misconceptions is that there needs to be this barrier to entry to classical. Right. The first huge show I worked on with Celine was in 2008. It was for the 400th anniversary of Quebec City and her band was unavailable. So they hired me and a bunch of people here from Montreal because I was pretty well known in the live scene and studio scene and pretty well everything scene at the time and it was that was the first time she worked with a it was a small orchestra but it was still a 15-piece string section and a couple of french horns and some other horns i know that after that is when she incorporated the orchestra into her vegas show and when we were working on all the string stuff sometimes we'd be rehearsing with just the strings and celine and it's been 10 years that we've been saying we have to do a record of celine with just a string orchestra or celine piano and string orchestra because It leaves so much space for her voice. And I honestly think that's going to happen eventually, maybe like in the next five years. I'm so interested in getting a behind the scenes look at how this works. Are you her de facto music director? I am at her this point? complete musical director. Okay, that's what it says it, in my you contract. You are in name music director. Okay, yeah, yeah. even better. Conductor, so musical director. What does that entail? How do you work with her and with other musicians on a show? She still has her Vegas uh, residency. Correct. Which... By the way, for those of you who don't know, once you go to Vegas and set up shop yep. uh, as a singer, as a diva, as a show, as a pen and teller, <laughs> right, right. that means you have achieved a certain level of popular penetration. Of course. Where, you know, you, much like uh, Billy Joel in Madison Square Garden for his monthly shows, you're just a guaranteed ticket. Right. When would you say that shift occurred for her? She did it in 2002. And, and from what I hear, I wasn't her musical director at the time. The brains behind it was Rene Angelil. Like Rene Angelil, her manager, it was really Colonel Tom Parker with Elvis. That was a 50-50 <laughs> deal. Rene Angelil was an absolutely brilliant man who had great audacious ideas, a lot of confidence, but he would risk things also. Like he yes. put everything he owned into Celine, and obviously it paid off. Yes, in, I, in I believe uh, he mortgaged his house correct. for her first album. That's, Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's the anecdote, and I think it's true. And he obviously, he had things in life that he liked. He was sort of a gambler and he liked to hang around Vegas. And that's probably played into it too. It was like a win-win. And I know some people at the time were very skeptical about the viability of Celine being a resident in Las Vegas. Because at the time, it was still a little bit of a graveyard for artists in mm -hmm. the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> like Celine, sometimes in her show at the beginning... She she ad-libs all the time when she talks and she'll switch subjects. Like every show is different. We never know. But a theme she comes back to quite often is, I started here in 2002 and I was supposed to be here for three weeks and now I'm still here. So I think that she's really up the bar. Like they did construct the Coliseum for her, the 4,300-seat arena. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a beautiful, beautiful hall. Sight lines are great. The sound is really good. You know, when you think for the hotels, also for Caesars Palace, if you have 4,300 people coming in four nights a 
a week and she sells out every show. Just think if 500 people stick around and gamble for an hour, it's good yeah. for the casino. And it everyone opened up a lot of eyes, I think. A lot, a lot of people started to look at Las Vegas with a lot less uh, cynicism, you know, and start to be a little more open to it. That's well said. in a daily operation of when you're working on a show. Celine always has something cooking. It's like when we go to Las Vegas, we go for three and a half weeks. We do four shows a week. Sometimes we, we have days off and they're very good. Sometimes our days off are completely days off. But say she's doing a, the American Music Awards in two months. So we'll have a meeting, what song we're going to do. We'll check out the arrangement. If there's a new arrangement to be done, I'll take care of it. I love writing for orchestra, for strings and brass and everything. The show in Las Vegas, when I started with her, was August 2015. We revamped it quite a bit. We did about... A third of the show was new at that time, and since then we've changed about another third of the show. Like the big hits are still there and haven't really changed, but a lot of stuff that was there before, like I would redo some of the arrangements. It's just consists of like I have a hotel room with a little studio in there, like Logic, like we have here, <laughs> and uh, I would do demos and stuff and uh, write arrangements and send copies, and then we could go downstairs and sound check at four thirty, five o'clock, run through with the orchestra, and then Celine comes in at five fifteen and she's so fast like she's just awesome she just comes in and bang and nine times out of ten she likes it so i'm happy and she's also um celine part of my job a big part of my job is to keep her stimulated like mm. she could come in and sing two songs and make sure her mic works and her earphones work and she's happy but she always sticks around till the last minute We're supposed to liberate the stage at pre the stage at six she'll usually keep me till six ten six fifteen she likes to jam she likes to say do you know this song and then we'll try songs together now we're in preparation for the Asian tour, so uh, we had a set list prepared. Sometimes we'd take songs and take five songs, shorten them a bit, and create a medley and transitions, key changes, stuff like that. There's always something to do as a musical director. I don't want to compare her to Michael Jackson, but I feel like she has the same sort of fluidity and fluency in music the way he does. From, from what I've observed you know, in rehearsal and in performance... Um, Interesting point. Yeah. yeah it, and it's physical too. Like Celine moves well too. I know she's taken a little bit of lessons, ballet, stuff like that. And just doing what she does, obviously have to have some training. But obviously Michael Jackson was a dancer, be all like awesome. And Celine to me, yeah, it's a, it's a good comparison. They just live music. They can sing anything they can hear. They, they can physically express it. They move well. Are you in situations with her where you're sort of woodshedding or working on a tune or, or in the studio? And I wonder, like, what's the process there as far as artistic collaboration between music director and performer? It's very fluid. <clears throat> Either she'll start something or any pattern that I start at all, she'll always start singing on top of it. And one thing that, that I discovered working with her the last two, three years, her talents as a lyricist, she comes out with these lines yeah. off the top of her head. She's just creative. She's just a fountain of ideas, musical, lyrical, all kinds of things. Does she write her own songs? She or doesn't. Does I don't think she's been really given the opportunity. Mm. Like, I don't think... You could see her doing more singer-songwritery. I could see her... 
at least writing half the songs of a show, of a, sorry, of a record. Mm-hmm. But it would be a real leap. Uh, like, you know, she would need good collaborators and stuff like that. But she has ideas and she has things to say. Like, mm-hmm. now as a, it's no secret, like a 50-year-old woman, she has to have lyrics that relate to her life. She, uh, Celine, if it's not believable, she's not going to do it. And I think that's the thing for a lot of music that people forget is often we'll hear a song and say, this is good, this is bad, I liked it, I didn't like it. When really, that's shorthand for, were you convinced? That's the key to it all. Were you convinced and also, can you relate to it? Did it touch you? Like, there are a lot of people with good voices. Like, there are lots of people that sing well, but there aren't that many great artists and performers. When you, you mentioned Michael Jackson, like Prince, you know, people who are yeah, on that next level. level. Next level. Like, Celine, to me, is on that level. For like, sure. She's up there. They're born with a lot of it, and a lot of it is accumulated. Just they're sponges. It's by osmosis. Just they just absorb all this stuff from around them and mix that with a little bit of... Um, yeah, Celine is extroverted. Yeah, with some extroversion, and the, she, she needs to perform. Mm-hmm. Like, she's on all the time. Like, mm-hmm. even when she's not doing a show, if Celine comes into a room... She's the center of attention. It's very riveting. Yeah. A little bit of an exhibitionist. That's what I think. I think at that level of performance, you have to be an extrovert. And you also have to be able to draw on your introverted tendencies when it's just you exactly. hammering a track. So, yep. Depending on the lyrical content of the song, too. Like, she can close up and sing in her, in her head voice so softly and so beautifully. And then next verse, belting it out full chest voice. Your voice is warm. to become a Steinway artist. So they say. So they say. I would uh, love to. That, that's happening. I've seen the paperwork. Okay. <laughs> I'm um, very pleased. Tell me about your Steinway. When we that? came back from our tour, last year we did a tour of Europe for about two months. And uh, I said, you know, at this point in my life, if I do things right, I'd be able to afford it. And uh, it's funny, when I was I was thinking back when I was first talking to you about when I was studying like... There's no rap on my parents or anything, but I didn't really have a very good instrument to learn. It on. makes a difference, and you don't know it as a kid. I know you don't realize how much it, it it's yeah. jangling in your ear. Like but I have yeah. a tendency to over pedal, and I know it, a lot of it is because when you're I trying was to work that instrument, trying to make yep. sound come out yep. of it. You know, yep. I bought my first grand piano when I was about 25 years old. It was a hundred year old old Heinzmann. It wasn't very mm-hmm. good, but it wasn't I, Heinzmann is a good brand. But I mean, this piano it had seen better days, and then I ended up with an Estonia. But it's funny I mentioned Emerson, Lake, and Palmer at the beginning of our interview on this record trilogy by Emerson, Lake and Palmer Keith Emerson in his credits he talked about Moog synthesizer but then he says Steinway piano model D and I know that really <laughs> marked me and I used to go to a lot of concerts I still do Yeah. and like 99% of the time at, the, at Place des Arts here in Montreal there's Steinways like Steinways always been to me like the epitome of not only a classy brand but also something that a Live the quality lives up to the reputation. So when I came back from this tour, I said, you know, let's do it. And I went to Piano Bodzuk here in Montreal, and they were very helpful to me. So now I'm the proud owner of a Steinway Model B. 
That's very good. I like the B. We often call the B uh, our perfect piano. I understand why. Mine is very rich and warm sounding. Being as it's brand new, it's not bright at all yet. Um, there was a very good A beside it too, a really good sounding A, but I played on them both for hours and I remember thinking, you know, long term, just the resonance, mm -hmm. just the way the keys feel take the B it's worth it and for solo for solo piano recitals I really like it as an instrument it's warm enough it has enough range so listeners the, the models go S-M-O-A-B-D of course you're going to have the most control on the D that's right. what we would call the concert grand but again I think for solo recitals I really like hearing a B I um, plan on doing some recording at home too mm. uh, with my B um, when you play when you play at home yep. um, the lid is open <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's, do you sit at the piano when you write or when you arrange or do you tend to do that just I tend on the to write or paper and pen my studio is downstairs in my basement and I'm pretty traditional at writing arrangements yeah I'm sort of pen and paper some people like to put stuff into a sequencer and send it to a copyist but to me the process works better actually writing down the notes mm, it's tactile my, my piano is upstairs but sometimes I set a table beside it and I can arrange on the piano but Piano for me is kind of different. It's the inspiration. Sometimes I'll sit down at it while water's boiling for three minutes, and then sometimes I'll sit down at it for four hours. You know, it's just very centrally located in the house, and it looks amazing, <laughs> and it sounds incredible. Like, and everyone, my children and my my wife, they like it. It never bothers anybody. They they're very good about that. Yeah. It's like they all like to hear it. And I like to hear my kids too playing on it. Uh, well, we are excited to have you. Good luck with your upcoming Celine tours. You said Asia is yeah, we're, is coming I'm excited. Up. We're going to Tokyo, Macau, Singapore, Bangkok. That just speaks to the universal power, of course, of all music, but specifically right. hers. I, I don't imagine that these are all fluent English speakers. That message carries. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Emerson Lake & Palmer's arrangement of Aaron Copland's Hoedown on Manticore and Atlantic, Steinway artist Murray Pariah performing Chopin's Ballade No. 1 on Sony Classical, Stephen Osborne performing the seventh of Nikolai Kapustin's 24 Preludes in Jazz Style on Hyperion, Jeanette Renault performing L'Essentiel on Melon Miel, and Céline Dion performing Pour que tu m'aimes encore, My Heart Will Go On, and The Power of Love on Columbia and Epic. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at Steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.